We've been using the phrase, out of the cave, out of the cave. Uh, And like, I just say all of that to say, this is such a real topic. It's different for everybody. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a counselor and I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not trying to pretend to be any of that. But I do just believe in a God who created us and a God who created us in his image. And for me, that just means we need spiritual answers to some of these topics and some of these situations alongside medical stuff. And so that's what we're really talking about in this entire thing. We also just have believed, and we believe, that the Bible is the very word of God, and it is filled with incredible, helpful stuff for every topic that we could ever, we could ever imagine. And the topic of depression and anxiety comes up in the scriptures multiple times in in fact, many times, and we've, we've seen that. In fact, uh, we've been using the story of a man named Elijah. We've been in this same chapter of the Bible the entire six weeks, and Elijah was a man of God, a prophet of God, a Bible superhero. He does miracles in the name of God, uh, multiple amazing things in his life, but yet Elijah finds himself one day underneath a tree, sitting down, saying, God, I've had enough. I wish I could die. And uh, things lead to other things, and we, and we have learned, and through this story of Elijah, seen some of the things that led to his downward spiral, because understand this, and, and if you miss some of these, these are some of the previous weeks, but understand that every single one of us, no matter if mental illness for you is a chemical imbalance, or if it's from trauma in your past, or, or the, I mean, the list goes on and on, PTSD stuff fits into all of this, but all of us have contributing factors to those seasons where we downward spiral. And we talked about that, life and balance stuff and isolation and comparison, that trap and okay, all of those type of things. But the last couple weeks here, we've just really been diving into when you are in the middle of the cave, how do you get out? And that's what we've been talking about. Uh, and so here we go, that's enough of an introduction. Stand with me all over this place. Uh, You know, what's a good church service without standing up and sitting down a little bit, right guys? Yeah. So uh, we're going to stand and just read the Bible together, read this story, and uh, see where this takes us this week. So we're starting in verse number nine. Uh, The preface to this, the first eight verses talk about how Elijah is gripped with anxiety and fear. He's running away. He's under a tree wanting to die. And uh, God, God nourishes him physically, gives him like... Basically, the first step for God is uh, rest and physical nourishment of this man. And then Elijah goes on this little journey, ends up inside a physical cave. Uh, The cave is a physical, it's a real one, but it also has all sorts of metaphorical symbolism here of a different kind of cave as well. And so this is what's going on. And now Elijah is in the cave. Here's verse 9. It says, There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And we've talked about that, how Elijah's like ruminating in his mind, and all sorts of things that aren't even true come out of his mouth here. Uh, Your emotions are real, but they're not always accurate. They're not always true. Do you know what I mean? And so we've talked about that. Uh, Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. 
for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, a gentle whisper. We talked about that last week. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, is what we're going with, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel. Elijah will put to death any of those who escape. That's, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Let's pray. God, we, we just all together invite you into this moment in such a real way, in such a powerful way. We ask that through your word that truth would break barriers and bring freedom and do supernatural things in hearts and lives today. We know there are some in this place who are deeply, deeply in the middle of a cave. And we pray that, that this journey, that these words, that this story would bring light. And Lord, we just ask for that Use me, help me, be glorified in this moment. God, in your name we pray. Amen, amen. All right, give somebody a high five and have a seat. Let's go. <clears throat> Man. All right, uh, story time. You ready? How many of you ever heard of a man named Victor Frankel? You ever heard that name before? Wow, not very many. It's been a long time. They talk about him in school. They really do. I'm telling you, even though that's like one out of ten of us have heard of that name. Uh, Victor Frankl, significant figure in mental health history. And as we set up our topic for today, I want to tell you his story because his story is helpful in this. Victor Frankl, follow me on this, was an Austrian psychiatrist and neurologist who wrote a best-selling book, uh, called Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. What makes his book and his work so different than others in his field is that Viktor Frankl experienced suffering in his life that at a different level than pretty much anyone could ever imagine. Okay, Frankl got to put his theories into practice in a way. See, a brilliant neurologist, also from Austria, had released... His findings just a few years before, this man was named Sigmund Freud. Maybe you've heard of Freud in some of his work. And Freud's theory on life and happiness for people was all focused on pleasure. Basically, Freud argued that the key to unlocking happiness in your life was to do more things that make you feel happy. And if you do more things that make you feel happy, that's going to lead to a happier life. Uh, well, Frankel said, no, 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 this is not accurate. The secret of life 
is not pleasure. It's not that stuff. The secret of life is finding meaning. And when human beings lack meaning in their life, they dull the pain of meaningless by pursuing pleasure only to find that pleasure doesn't last. This is the argument that was happening in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, okay, between these neurologists who lived and were neighbors, okay? Frankel argued that the feeling of happiness is fleeting, it's temporary, when it, and especially when it's based on anything circumstantial, okay? Basically, what he's saying is the deep-down feeling of happiness is not connected to circumstances, It's not connected to things that we have or don't have or experience or don't experience. The deep down feeling of happiness is actually about finding meaning and purpose in life and how you live and what you do. But here's where things get crazy messy and here's why we're talking about him. See, Frankel was running this mental health center in Austria when the war broke out and Hitler and German forces took Austria. Okay, Um, Frankel's wife Tilly becomes pregnant, but the German doctors actually forced her to have an abortion. That was 1941. In 1942, Viktor Frankel and his wife Tilly, along with his mom, his brother, and her wife, and all of this, all of them were arrested and deported. Long story short, skipping all sorts of things in the story for the sake of time, Viktor, Tilly, and his mother were sent to the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland, Uh, and if you've ever heard of that word Auschwitz before, it's because it's by far the deadliest uh, concentration camp in the entire Holocaust experience. Out of the six million or so people who died in the Holocaust, uh, it's estimated that 1.1 million of them died at this single concentration camp called Auschwitz. 1.1 million out of six million. Uh, When you search this place, Auschwitz, online, you read articles titled things like The Worst Breakdown of Civilization in Human History. And it was a sickening place. Stuff we can't even imagine. And so Victor, his wife Tilly, Victor's mom, are separated. And unknown to him at the time, almost immediately a 65-year-old mother is killed in the gas chamber. Uh, skipping the worst parts of the story because we've got to get places here. Three years later... Three years after living through absolute hell in this concentration camp, U.S. troops come in, liberate the prisoners from Auschwitz. The victims are barely recognizable as people, Uh, literally skin and bones, but they were free. And Viktor Frankl set out on a desperate mission to find Tilly, to find his wife. They had been separated for over three years, only to receive the horrible news that she was dead. And he writes about that moment in a letter that he sent, September of 1945. This is after he learned that his wife, Tilly, was dead. Let me read this to you. It's super sad, uh, and it's a bit long, so I'm going to put it on the screen so you can kind of follow me. He writes this. He writes, so now I'm all alone. Whoever has not shared a similar fate cannot understand me. I'm terribly tired, terribly sad, terribly lonely, I have nothing more to hope for and nothing more to fear. I have no pleasure in life, only duties, and I live out of conscience. And so I have reestablished myself, and now I'm redictating my manuscript, both for publication and for my own rehabilitation. A couple of well-placed old friends have taken on my cause and in the most touching way, but no success can make me happy. 
everything is weightless, void, vain in my eyes. I feel distant from everything. It all says nothing to me, means nothing. The best have not returned. Also, my best friend, Hubert Gassur, was beheaded, and they have left me alone. In the camp, we believed that we had reached the lowest point. And then when we returned, we saw that nothing has survived, that that which had kept us standing has been destroyed, that at the same time as we were becoming human again, it was possible to fall deeper into an even more boundless suffering. There remains perhaps nothing more to do than cry a little and browse a little through the Psalms. Totally devastated, a man whose Medical theory, by the way, hung on the fact that happiness is not circumstantial. Skipping ahead a bit in the story, about a year out of Auschwitz, Frankel sat down and in nine days wrote out his book, this timeless classic that has sold over 10 million copies, 24 different languages, actually. Uh, In English, the book is called Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book... He tells his story of suffering at the hands of the Germans, the stories of his time in Auschwitz and everything that happened, but he also comes to some conclusions that are absolutely incredible. Uh, Let me give you a couple of them quickly, and then we we have to go quick because we need to get to Elijah here, but let me give you three of them. There's a whole bunch of amazing things. Number one, we always retain the ability to choose our attitude. He wrote this in his book, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offered sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's, you have a choice, we have a choice in anything that we face, how we're going to respond, is what he says. Number two, he wrote very clearly, there will be suffering, it's how we react to suffering that counts We will all suffer at different times and at different levels. How we react and how we respond is what truly matters. And he wrote, if there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is is an eradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without, Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. We will all suffer. And then the third thing, and this is one of the most clear things, and this goes back to something he had written and studied 20 some years ago, there's power in purpose. There's power in purpose, and he wrote things like, there is never made un- life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. This is a man who lived through absolute hell. Life is never made unbearable by what you go through, only by a lack of meaning and lack of purpose, often that what comes with that, okay? Uh, and he wrote, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how, Now, what's interesting is that we see some of these ideas come out in the scripture as well. That was not his intent. This is not someone who uses the Bible in a lot of what he said, even though he mentioned Psalms in that letter. Okay, Proverbs 28, 19 just simply says, without vision, the people perish. Without vision, people perish. Now, back to our story with Elijah. Elijah is in this cave Uh, God has led him there after physically restoring him with rest and nourishment. Elijah has 
multiple times expressed his raw emotion to God. He was very good at that. We talked about that last week. And in his honesty and in his desperation, God does supernatural things in his life in response. Uh, There's crazy wind, there's an earthquake, there's this fire. But then the story says God whispers to Elijah, uh, uh, whispers to him, and that's a powerful moment and something that we saw last week. Elijah then says some other stuff to God, but then it's God's turn to speak. And this is really our focus for today, verses 15 uh, and a little bit farther. And so verse 15, then God says to Elijah in the middle of this mess, he says, it says, the Lord says, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Okay, God, and then God goes on to give Elijah detailed instructions about what he is to do next. But I want to pause and hang on this for a moment on this first phrase. God says to Elijah, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Go back the way you came. Now for most of us, And unless you take time to really study and look at this, when you hear the phrase, go back the way you came, you just skip over it and read it to the next, you go on to the next part, okay? But let me try to explain to you what's in that, go back the way you came. The way he came was through a town called Beersheba. Beersheba, we read about that at the beginning of this story. Beersheba's name, the word Beersheba, means the place of the oath, The place of the oath. And this place comes up in the story and in the life of Elijah. It's the place where Elijah stood at one point and made this declaration to God saying things like, God, I give you my life. God, I'm your servant. God, I belong to you. God says, Elijah, go back the way that you came. And I believe God knows fully well here what that means, that Elijah will have to go back to the place where he made this massive commitment to God. The place of the oath is what it is called. See, God knows like Elijah has completely lost his purpose. And he's let all of these circumstances and all these situations just absolutely derail him from the call that God had on his life, from the meaning and the purpose of what he was to be and who he, like what he was doing. And then God gives him instructions to do specific things. And you can read about this, okay? Elijah's in this cave. So piece this all together with me. Elijah's in this cave. He's depressed. He's afraid. He, someone's trying to kill him, and he's freaked out about all of this stuff. He's been under a tree wanting to die. Now he's in this cave. God has shown up and, and miraculously given him food and rest in that way. God has whispered to him and all of the, but then just But then God just says to this man in this situation, get back to your purpose here. Get, get back to like who you are. Get back to meaningful work. Get back to that stuff. God says, go back the way you came. And then he goes through this list and God says, like, and then go anoint this guy. And then go anoint this guy. And then go anoint that other guy. This is the instructions that God gives depressed Elijah to respond with. Go do this stuff and and understand this. God's desire for you and for every discouraged and depressed depressed person is to get us back into a life of influence and meaning. To get us back to that. To a life of influence and meaning. In, in, in Viktor Frankl's book, like he writes, we were constantly looking out for the fellow prisoners who had lost their purpose. 
because at that point it was only a matter of time. When people lose their purpose, okay? And, and, and after God connects, God connects with Elijah and restored this relationship, he tells Elijah, go back the way you came, go back to finding why you are alive. Purpose. Okay, the purpose for Elijah's life. Get back into a life of influence and meaning. Now, um, secular psychologists, like if you get outside of the Bible and you begin to read psychology and, and this type of stuff, um, they all kind of agree there's not a whole lot more powerful for a depressed person than a project. Interesting. Like they'll, you find these in, in the books, a project. Uh, and if you, like, just understand, if you wake up every single day just paying bills, you, you will end up in a cave and you'll end up staying in that cave. But if you know what your life means and you are doing something that makes a difference for eternity and for other people, then that's a whole different thing. Listen to this. There is never a time that you and I are without a God-given purpose. There's never a time. And sometimes for us, like the greatest solution to finding internal happiness which is what so many people are longing for and looking for. Like sometimes it's like the solution is not around our circumstances. It's not getting more things and doing more things and going more places. Like the greatest solution to finding internal deep down happiness in life is knowing that your life matters. Your life makes a difference. And as time went on, what's fascinating about the story of Viktor Frankl is that he begins to now treat, he opens his practice and begins treating patients, most of whom are concentration camp survivors just like himself. And understand this, when you read about this time, all of these people uh, come out of these concentration camps, their life is a mess. Their loved ones are dead they have nothing. They don't even know where to go and what to do. And suicide becomes a massive issue in these people, in these concentration camp survivors. Most of them filled with immense amounts of trauma. PTSD everywhere, nightmares all the time. Most wrestled with rage from the brutality that they saw every single day for years. Horrible grief, horrible trauma. In this, in, like these people, it leads to this massive amount of people with serious mental illness issues. But though suicide was a massive issue, in like not a single patient under Viktor Frankl's care committed suicide. He created a therapy that he that he called Logo, Logo or Logos therapy. Um, the word Logo in Greek it's often like word, but it's also the word meaning. And uh, three things in his. In his therapy, uh, I'll read this to you quick, but we're not going to hang on them. Everything ne- everyone needs to do some type of meaningful work to find something with their life that matters. Okay, we've been talking about that. Number two, everyone needs a community of friends who love them unconditionally. A person cannot be healthy alone is what he said. And number three, everyone needs to take whatever suffering they experience and find something positive about it. Okay, we've talked about these first two, both very biblical concepts, both come up in the story of Elijah. In fact, we're, we're not even going to talk about this stuff, but 
in the last, in the list of what God tells Elijah to do, the very last part of it is go anoint this, this guy named Elisha as the next prophet, is what he says at the very end of that. Uh, Elisha is going to be the next Elijah, but Elijah anointing Elisha, you know what that's going to mean, is that Elijah is never going to be alone again. And so we see this even come out of that as well. But let's quickly just talk Victor, Victor Frankl's third point because we see this in the scripture as well. Okay, He writes it as this way, find something positive about their suffering. But when you read more into what he's getting at, what he means is find ways to use your suffering to help other people. Okay, um, Find ways to use suffering help other people. Now, we see this in the Bible. Let me show you this. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, he wrote, God comforts us all in our troubles so that we can comfort those in, in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You hear that? We, like, God comforts us so that we can comfort others in their troubles. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comforts abound through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort. And he's writing, this is a letter he's writing, uh, comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. God comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others who are troubled. And, and I'm just telling you, if you can begin to see the nasty moments in your life and the horrendous seasons of your life as opportunities to actually help and serve other people, it can transform things for you. It can change things for you. But this is so difficult, isn't it? Like that sounds all beautiful, but it's so hard. Why? Because when you are in the middle of a storm, like it's hard to think about anything except for what you're facing. Right? Someone nod their head with like, let me know that you understand what I'm saying. It's so hard because that's all that we, that's all that we, but write this down. Somebody needs to hear this right here. Your pain is either a jail that imprisons you or a school that empowers you. Wow. Someone nod your head at that. Someone take a picture of the screen because you need to do that. Your pain is either a jail that imprisons you or a school that empowers There is purpose in our pain. It doesn't mean that God caused all this to happen. We live in a broken world that is filled with broken people and brokenness all around. And we have a spiritual enemy that is trying to wreak havoc on all of that stuff. Okay? Like, listen, your life experience doesn't disqualify you from helping people. Your life experience qualifies you to help somebody who's going through the exact same thing. We oftentimes, we see, we see people who were so addicted to something and to, like, made a train wreck mess of their life at some point. And maybe some of this is your, your spot and where even where you've been. But these people, they're like, I can't do anything because of my past. And I just want to say to them, your past is a beautiful help for somebody else. 
And if you can learn to see your junk and your failures and your stuff, the stuff that you, that you don't want anyone else to know about, if you can begin to see that stuff as a way to serve and to help somebody else, God shows up and brings purpose in a supernatural way. Amazing things, okay? Uh, Victor Frankl suffered immensely. Like, can't even imagine. You read, you read his story, and it makes you sick. It really does. And he finds himself with a choice of how he's going to respond. And history tells us he made the conscious decision to use his life to make a difference and try to help alleviate the suffering of others. He refuses to allow the evil that destroyed his family and caused his suffering to silence him and rule his life. And understand, like, when we, when we battle depression in different ways at different times, we face similar choices. Like, how are we going to respond? And it may not feel in the midst of your darkest seasons like you have a choice. But nobody can tell you how to respond. They can tell you, but you, nobody can make you respond in a certain way. You have the ability to choose. And that's hard for some of us to hear because we, we feel so overwhelmed with all of the junk and everything and the heaviness and all of that. Like it feels almost like I don't have a choice. Everything is pulling me this way. And we're talking about complicated things like chemical imbalance and trauma and PTSD and grieving over the loved ones that we have lost. And you say, how can I have a, you have, you have a choice. You have the ability to choose. Are you going to isolate yourself and, and downward spiral? Or are you going to make a, take a stand and say, I need help. And you have a choice whether, whether you are going to lay in that junk and say, oh, you know, this is my life and it's all, or you have a choice to step out and say, there must be more than this. God, help me. I want to be a blessing to other people. And I don't, I don't mean in any way to make this sound easy, and I don't mean in any way to make this like kicking somebody in the teeth here a little bit and saying, wow, you're such a failure again because you're failing to do this. Like, that's not what this is. Hear me in love. You have a choice. You have a choice. And one of the quickest ways to defeat depression is by redirecting our attention from ourselves to the needs of other people. It's a Bible thing. It's a psychology thing. It's all over the place. Everywhere you look, when we give ourselves in ministry to others, God gives us his power to live out our purpose. So here's then the question, how do we live with purpose and meaning? Because purpose and meaning seem to be central to so much of this, what God does in Elijah, what Viktor Frankl's whole theories are based on in his entire book, okay, all of this seems to purpose and meaning. Well, this question is answered differently if God is your focus. So let's change it. How do you find purpose if God is your focus? Okay, you start with prayer. You start with prayer, and you start by asking God to give you purpose, and you pray things like this, and somebody needs to hear this. You pray, God, show me purpose. God, Give my life meaning. Help me to f- see that. 
Help me to step into that. This is how it starts, with a desperate and a hungry prayer, crying out to God, God, I want my life to matter. I want my life to make a difference. Help me find that and see that. And you prayerfully begin to ask questions, even asking yourself questions like, God, what can I do to help someone who is dealing with the same stuff? I may not have all this figured out, and I may be with them, but what do I do to help somebody who's in this spot with me? God, how can my life make a difference in somebody else's life? What does it look like, like God, for that to become a reality and a part of my story? God, help my mess somehow be a message to somebody. See what I did there? Mess and message? Kind of, that's good stuff right there. Help my mess to be a message. Music team, will you please come? Now, let me summarize this all today. We've kind of been like heavy and not a whole lot of laughing moments this morning, have we? Uh, let me summarize this. We saw God show himself to depressed Elijah. Elijah cries out to God, and he's very raw. And we talked about this list last week. Even the things that he says to God are not even true. Like he says, I'm the only one. And then we get four verses later where God says to Elijah, there's 7,000 just like you. You know what I mean? And he's like, I'm the only one. Okay, so what he's saying is not even accurate. But he's expressing his raw emotions to God. We saw that in this book of Psalms all over the place where people are saying, how long am I going to have to be in this miry clay? How long, God, are you going to avoid me and turn your back on me? And God's like, I never turned my back on you. The people expressing their raw emotions, even though they aren't even right, okay? God wants us to do that. And in that, in our raw uh, expressions and honesty and desperation, we see God show up in Elijah's story in a massive way. God whispers to him, and we see that a, a, a supernatural, a supernatural moment, okay? Uh, but then God shows up and says, Elijah, go back the way you came. Symbolism here, like there's a little, there's a literal sense here of God wanting Elijah to go, really go back there. But we also have this symbolism, Elijah, go back to the purpose I have for your life. Go back to making a difference for my glory. Go back to finding the meaning and all of that in your life. That's a piece. It's a huge piece of what God wants. Go back the way you came, which just so happens to be through a very important place in your life and your history, the place where you made this personal deep commitment to God in the past. And then God gives Elijah stuff to do. You're super depressed, Elijah. Go anoint that guy and anoint that guy and anoint that guy and find Elisha. You guys are going to be buddies now. It's going to help you. This is, this is God's answer. You'll never be alone again. Finding purpose. Filling your life with purpose. Finding the right relationships. People to speak life and hope into your darkest spaces. Please stand with me all over this place. It's been a lot, a lot of heavy stuff, a lot of emotions that maybe surfaced in your life that you didn't even know were there. Uh, bottom line, even Christians get depressed. And we will not be a church here that says, if you just, if you just love Jesus, you're never going to have low moments in your life again. That's not a very biblical place. As we see a superhero of the Bible 
suicidal under a tree. But understand, there are things in your life that lead to the downward spiral. And no matter what your situation is, no matter why this is an issue for you, we talked a little bit about, you know, some of the medical stuff and how that's very real. Some of the chemical imbalance. Some of us need to go to a doctor and you need to go to a psychiatrist and you need to figure some of this stuff out. In fact, if you are here today and the depth of your darkness you say is kind of scary low, then you need to reach out to somebody for help. And we will pray, we will pray with you and we will do whatever we can, but we, some of us need to be referred to professionals who deal with some of this stuff all the time. And we wanna help you, and so if that's your spot, you need to come and talk to a pastor or you need to write something on a connect card and we're gonna get you the help that, we, that you need. If your darkness is a scary low, okay? But understand, all of us have things that contribute to those things in our lives. We have an enemy that's very real, that, is, that, that wants nothing more than to see you be immobile and suffering so that you cannot live for God in the way that God has asked you and called you to do. There's, he, he has that. The enemy is a very real thing. We talked about some of that type of stuff. And just the list goes on and on. We isolate ourselves. It leads to this stuff, okay? But understand, there are clear things and one of the biggest ones that you read about, and this is even outside of the Bible, psychology, psychiatrists, all this type of books and stuff will tell you doing a project, having purpose, having some reason to get out of bed in the morning other than paying bills goes an all like a long way when it comes to this topic. And as Christians, it goes even farther because we have a God-given purpose and we have meaning in our life that is a different way as God is asking us to live in a way that helps those around us and speaks life in all of those things. Begin to pray for God to show you that and help you that. This series is sort of done, but I'm gonna tell you this. Next week, we are going into a three-week series and you could argue it's like another step from this because our series is actually called 21 Days of Feasting. And we are gonna be looking and, and studying the topic of gratitude and contentment in the Bible. And I'm telling you, gratitude can change everything, can change things in your life, even if nothing else changes, okay? It's an attitude, it's a posture that just says, God, thank you for what I have, not this immense cultural longing for I need more, okay, all right. As we close, I just wanna take a moment or two and just pray together. We realize there are all sorts of different situations and different people here. Some of this is very heavy for some of us and I get that. Let's just pray together. God, we come to you today with our lowest moments and our messiest situations and in kind of a raw way, we just say there are times when, when we are not good Lord, I just pray, I pray that even in this moment, we would, we would know you in a different way, that we would see you and hear you and feel you close. And so, Lord, we just come today corporately asking you to help. And God, for those who are in a deep, 
deep cave, God, let, let something change. And I pray that we would be obedient and I pray that we would get the help that we need from people who, who, who can help us. And I pray that we would surround ourselves with, with the right relationships and all of these things. Lord, but let somebody today find freedom from this, this deep, nasty place. And so God, we love you and we need you. It's in your name we pray. One final thing here before we're done. Uh, the Bible like so clearly points to this idea of a God who made a way for us. And maybe you're here today and you have never, you have never responded to the message of Jesus. Okay? The message that he loves you and he cares for you and he died for you. And if you're here today and you would say, Pastor Kyle, I've never given my life to Jesus and I want to do that today with no one looking around, every eye closed and head bowed. If that's you and you're saying, today is my day, I want to respond to the message of Jesus, just show me your hand. We just want to pray with you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? You can put your hand down. Anybody else? Just a moment longer. If you're online right now, you can respond. It's not just about raising your hand. It's like a heart thing between you and God. And anyone else for just a moment. Church, let's pray together. Everyone in this place, pray this. Pray, Father God, I give you my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Forgive me of my sins and change my life. In your name I pray, amen. Come on, put your hands together for today.